Welcome to the Insights Podcast by UNSW Law Society. The production team would like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is made, and pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. This episode, we are joined by Maria Stolger, host and producer of the Talking With Painters podcast. She is also a painter, so most people now may know her from the art scene, but Maria actually began her professional career as an insurance litigation lawyer. After a decade practicing law, Maria pivoted to building her podcast, which is now in its sixth year. Talking with Painters has garnered critical acclaim, having been listed in British Auction House Christie's Best Art World Podcasts and as a finalist in the Australian Podcast Awards. As a fan of her podcast, I can personally attest that Maria is excellent at drawing engaging, personal and highly meaningful conversations from the artists that she interviews. Maria, thank you for taking time out to speak on Insights. My pleasure, Tracy. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for asking me. (laughs) Thank you. So you grew up in Newcastle and you moved to Sydney to complete a law degree. What led you to pursue law? Okay. Well, yes, I grew up in Newcastle. I love Newcastle. It's the most fabulous town. Um, Now, my parents, I probably have to go back a bit. My parents um, have have a Greek background. They were born in Greece. They came uh, when they were, they came to Australia when they were quite young. So I'm a child of a Greek migrants. Um, and I think a lot of children of migrants are high achievers. <laughs> and so I was very studious at school, um, you know, in the debating team. I was captain of my school, Newcastle High School. Um, and so I did very well in the HSC. And at that point, you sort of think to yourself, what am I going to do? And back in those days, if you did really well, there was a lot of pressure to do either law or medicine, you know. But my you know, my the subjects I took were mainly languages. Actually, I did French, um, Greek, and Latin, uh, so it was much more on the arts side. Uh, but I had done debating. I was in the debating team. We did quite well, and also my work experience was with a law firm, which was. Actually, I'd, I'd almost forgotten about that. I mean, it wasn't really very good work experience. They basically put me in a room and sort of got me to add up, add up numbers with a calculator, which wasn't very legal. But anyway, so I suppose I thought to myself, well, that looks. I might as well do a law degree. And the other great. Um, uh, incentive for me was that you couldn't do a law degree in Newcastle. So it was this big adventure to go to Sydney Uni. Um, and I remember seeing a photo of Sydney University quadrangle in the uh, university admissions handbook. Uh, because, you know, in those days there was no internet. So, you know, there was this one photo of Sydney University and it was that beautiful manicured lawn with the jacaranda tree and I thought I want to go to that university you know so yeah so at 17 years old I came to Sydney and Wonderful. started my law degree yeah. yeah I think it's definitely where you see the admissions booklet they always make it look very nice no matter what uni it is um, and then you get very drawn to that and you sort of build an idea of what uni would be like and you sort of dream about okay what what would it actually be to get there um, and that's probably you know what incentivizes you as well yeah so true so true because when you're at school you're still in the land of the children sort of a thing and this idea that I'm going to be an adult I'm going to be able to do whatever I want that that was the other thing is about like I can actually do whatever I want all day like you know between lectures I can go and hang out with different people so it's yeah very exciting. And so you said that you did debating in um, school so during your time at law school what sort of extracurriculars were you involved in? Well, I, because I came from Newcastle, um, I went to a residential college. So I went to women's college on campus. And um, because what we were just saying a second ago, that it is such a huge life change to go from being, especially from a, quite a sheltered Greek 
upbringing to suddenly being at women's college and you can basically as I said do whatever you want whenever you want uh, so in a way that life at college was quite intense so there were a lot of activities in college like actually it's funny I used to I was drawn more to the sort of drama and music areas and so I get involved in you know sort of reviews and things like that that we did in college but I also um, went to Sydney I was I went to SUMS which is Sydney Uni Music Society so I did that for a year or two and I also uh, at I probably got more involved actually at College of Law because back in 1989 when I did College of Law you had six months um, at college in St Leonard's and it was so much fun. It was the, mo the most fun because there was, you basically couldn't fail. That was the thing about College of Law, nobody failed. And it was like you were in these little classrooms. So it's like going back to school again. And we had these little pretend firms and we'd be pre pretending to write letters. And it was, and it, there was a lot of, uh, you know, um, socialising. The reason I'm raising all of that is that uh, one of our friends, Max Burnell, he was into drama. And so he arranged for us all to um, write a review. So everyone was invited to write a skit, you know, a comedy skit. And so I wrote two comedy skits and acted in that, that law review. And I tell you, it was at the Seymour Centre in Chippendale. It was fantastic. I wish we filmed it because it was so funny. So looking back in a funny way, all those extracurricular things that I did were all arts related. So it's sort of not so surprising that I've gone in that direction since then. Yeah, but I'm sure it was like a, a good practice as well to get you into um, performing and also speaking in front of people. Yeah, that's true actually, yeah, yeah. I sort of, it's funny, I, would, I was always in the sort of uh, musicals and things at school, so I did like performing, but as we were talking, saying a second ago, public speaking terrifies me. So it's funny when you're actually performing, it is totally different, I suppose because you've got a script. You know, and you sort of think, oh, now. And also not everyone's looking just at you. I find that, I still find that quite hard to do, but I'm getting better at it. Yeah. I'm doing more and more of it, actually. No, I'm sure your podcast is amazing. It's, <laughs> I definitely really, really liked it. Um, and then I found out when I was just like searching her profile, I was like, what if she did a law degree? Then I could bring her on the podcast. And you did. So <laughs> oh, really? Was, you did? Oh, that's yes. how you figured it out? So okay. that, that was why um, I had planned on actually speaking to you before and regardless of whether you had a law background, um, but that was just like the icing on the cake. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. I can actually bring you on the podcast. So yeah. Oh, fabulous. Oh, I was so excited to hear from you. Yeah, this is really a treat for me. Um, so after graduating, you practice as an insurance litigation lawyer. Um, it's quite a specific area of the law. So what was that like? Yeah, right. So when uh, yeah, so basically what I was working in was um, personal injuries litigation. So uh, it was for defendant insurers. So basically people who were injured at work or so workers comp or um, motor vehicle accidents, people injured in motor vehicle accidents. Uh, and uh, that area of law is sort of, um, there's less litigation in that area because of legislation that's been passed since I was working in it. So it's not as, uh, you know, a busy area of practice as it used to be. Uh, but it was, I loved it. It was so great. It was, and it was also before email. If you can imagine there was a world before email. <laughs> and so you would be sitting in your office. It was very, it was very leisurely, you know, compared to I think what a, a law practice is these days. And you would have your in tray with your physical letters, you know, and you would read them and you'd have your out tray and you'd dictate your letters and all this sort of thing. So basically what it consisted of was um, basically 
reading a lot of medical reports and le reading a lot of um, uh, investigators' reports and advising the client on their prospects of um, success. And so as whether they were injured or not. Um, but it was more as to whether they're exaggerating their injuries. So, I mean, looking back, I think I would have preferred to be a plaintiff's you know, <laughs> solicitor because you sort of were constantly trying to prove they were liars, where they usually weren't lying, you know. Um, but, you know, you'd get your medical reports which said there's nothing wrong with them and they'd get their medical reports which said, you know, there's, there's so much wrong with them and then you'd have to... And basically, you would usually settle those matters. Um, so it would usually settle on the door of the court, you know. Uh, but uh, the other side of the work, so there's the sort of more the desk work where you'd be advising the client and all that sort of thing, um, reading lots of reports. Um, on the investigators' reports, that's right, the invest I, was, I was quite shocked when I first started working, so I was like 25 or whatever, and I thought, oh my goodness, they send out investigators following these people, they don't realise they're being surveilled, and they, to see whether they were exaggerating their injuries, you know, and you'd have to watch the videos of them sort of going and doing their shopping and lifting up bags and, see, they've got no back problem, they're fine, you know, it's, and it sort of was a bit demoralising because, you know. Because even if you have a back problem, you, you, sh you have to keep on living and you might be in pain. And that's basically what they did say, um, if any of the cases ran, which was quite rare. So, yeah, so there's that side of it, sort of you're advising. And then there's the court of attendance. So that was really um, quite good because uh, you'd be in court probably three three days a week, but just for small things. So you, the barrister would run the hearing, but if there was any little mentions or directions hearings or return of subpoena or anything, you'd have to sort of walk up to court and appear. And it was usually, it was the junior solicitors that did that. Uh, and it was really good experience because it was pretty scary sometimes, you know, um, especially if you're in front in the Supreme Court in front of a judge or something, that would be a little bit scary. And everybody else in the court would be watching. So that would be a bit intimidating. Uh, but you got a lot of experience, a lot of court work, a lot of work on your feet. Um, sometimes you'd be, you know, um, you'd be the sacrificial lamb because some mean partner would pick on you and give you this time bomb of a case and you'd have to go up to court and, you know, be, you know, blasted by the judge because you hadn't done what you're supposed to do. But uh, generally speaking, it wasn't that scary. So, yeah, so it was, it was really, really enjoyable work. Yeah, that's great. I think it's more the practical stuff outside of um, paperwork from day to day, because paperwork, you can look at precedents or you can always ask someone like, how should I word this? But when you're in front of someone else and you have to go on the spot like, um, and think on the spot as well, a lot of that practical experience stacks up and it makes you so much better and prove a lot more, a lot faster. That is so true. Um, yeah, it's a real learning experience. And the more you do it, the more, uh, you know, the better you get at it. Um, and I hope, you know, I hope that those little lists and that, that sort of thing don't end up all online because that's where you really learn how to uh, speak, you know, in court. And especially for people who want to go to the bar, it's really great training. So, um, yeah, I think that's a bit of, an, it's in a state of flux at the moment as to whether, you know, some of that is going to go online. But yeah. I, th I think there's a, a bit of both. Some people want it to be online because it does save a lot of time walking to and from court um, and they can just like click log on and if it's just a mention then it's kind of not worth 
walking all the way down there. Um, but then there's also people who enjoy the interaction. They find it like it breaks up their day a bit more. So there's there's definitely that balance. Well, that's right. And also you get to meet other people because you'd be milling around the court, you know, and you'd be sitting and you strike up a conversation with someone else. Um, I mean, admittedly, that was before phones that nobody's been standing there on their phone. But at least it's not, you know, at least you're all it's collegiate, you know, so you know you're all solicitors together. So you do tend to meet people in that way. So it's really, it's, it's, it's a great social activity as well. You wouldn't have thought so, but it is, it's a great social thing, yeah. Um, and then later you went to Waverley Willara Art School in the Julian Ashton Art School. How was, um, at what point did you think about potentially changing careers? So after practicing law for about a decade? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So, yeah, I'd been practicing law for close to 10 years. And then the catalyst is I had a baby. <laughs> now, back in those days, so that was 1999, uh, you had 12 months maternity leave. But coming back to litigation was actually really hard because you either basically had to come back full time. It was really rare to have a part time job. And in our firm, uh, I remember there was one woman who was doing job sharing with someone else. So, and that was after she'd taken a nine-year nine break and she'd come back and it was a really strange arrangement and everybody sort of thought, oh, and she's leaving at five o'clock. Oh my God, you know, this is outrageous, you know, because we'd all hang around till six, seven o'clock. Um, so it wasn't, so basically I, I had to decide what was I going to do? Uh, was I going to go back full time? Was I going to try and somehow do a part time arrangement, which wasn't really popular with the partners? Uh, and what I decided to do was to just um, stay at home for a while and just work it out later on, sort of a thing. And then our second child came along, and so I basically just didn't make the jump back in for a few years. And uh, I would highly recommend people, if they decide to have kids, don't. Uh, don't go from being a full-time solicitor to a full-time stay-at-home mum. It is not great for your mental health because then you've suddenly lost your whole identity and then you're doing, especially then when there was no internet and there was no social media, so you couldn't connect with people very easily. So you basically had your mother's group and I'd go to the library a lot with the, with the baby and all that sort of thing and that was quite fun. But you do need some extra stimulation, especially after being so busy before that. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? I, I had sort of decided not to go back to law at that point. And so I had always done drawing when I was, uh, some, so from when I was about 20, I would say, I started drawing. So I started uh, copying um, photos from magazines of celebrities. So I would draw them, you know, on, on paper. And then I think, wow, you know, that actually looks pretty good. <laughs> and actually, weirdly enough, my grandfather was an artist and my mum's a pretty good draw. She draws quite well, but she actually became an artist after I became an artist, which is weird. Um, anyway, so I thought, gee, I used to really love doing that because I used to go to life drawing classes after work. So basically, I had drawn basically from about 22 when I had my child at 34. And then I just, I didn't do any more um, drawing at that point. Yes, yeah, so I had drawn, so basically I had drawn from when I was about 20 till when I had Rebecca, my daughter. And, um, and then I thought, you know, I've got to get back into that because that's what made me feel myself, you know, like it was the best thing for me and I felt it really lifted my spirits. Um, I also did, I came, actually, I came to University of New South Wales and did a, a studied 
uh, Greek for a while, just one subject. Uh, I was considering doing a degree, but I didn't actually end up doing it because art took over. But that was another thing that actually got my mind stimulated again, um, which, you know, I just didn't realise that I needed that at the time. But anyway, so... So then I thought, okay, this is great. I'm going to go to art class. So I started going to art classes at Waverley Willow Art School. And portraiture has always been my great love. And so after I really started to learn how to paint and how to handle paints and how to handle... And I started... I used the garage as my studio. So I started taking it really seriously. Uh, and I started doing a lot of portraits. I started doing portrait commissions um, and I went to Julia National Art School which is where you go to learn how to paint the portrait traditionally in those traditional ways which is what I like doing uh, and I was there just part-time doing classes every now and again and uh, I entered a, I started entering competitions and I started um, and I even won a little competition which was really exciting so I was that's what I saw for myself was that, okay I'm just going to keep getting better and better at this and I'm going to maybe enter the Archibald one day and all that sort of thing. So that was my life at that point. I was getting a lot of satisfaction out of that. So that's, that's really what caused, it was basically having kids that, that caused that to all happen. Do you think that if the partners were amenable to you staying on as part-time, do you think you would have continued doing that? I think I probably would have. And actually, I'm glad I didn't, but because I think this is more me what I'm doing now. But I think definitely, yes, I definitely would have gone back. Uh, because you, it would have been manageable, I think. You know, because it wouldn't. I, I wasn't interested in a full-time nanny or anything like that. Um, but if I was working two or three days a week, say, you know, maybe two days and then three days the next week, I think that would have been a really good balance with bringing up kids. Definitely, definitely. So, when when you switched to doing classes at art school, was that? the point where you started thinking about making it a full-time thing given that you had already quit um, practicing law full-time? Yeah that's basically when I thought well this is going to be my sort of new career and actually I before the podcast I had tried a whole lot of other things like teaching in art and to see if maybe that would be the best way to do it um, and uh, a few other things I can't remember now offhand but yeah so I was I had definitely made the shift mentally that the arts and the visual arts was going to be the next stage and I just had to figure out how was I, what, how was I going to get into the art community a bit more than just being in the studio, which is, was one of the problems uh, with being an artist uh, is that it's quite isolating um, and I found that I was just... Um, yeah, yeah, sort of finding it quite quite isolating in lots of ways at that at that point, which also again is pre-social media, so it's a little bit different now. But I think it's also the nature of an artist's work. Um, a lot of traditional artists like to do things on their own, so even if they have um, maybe like a little studio where they share with other artists, um, it's very much an individual work and and you know you have to work on it yourself you can't ask someone to like hey can you put a brush there and like help me with that Um, it's very much their own work so I think that's also what creates that isolation effect because you know that you have to finish it yourself for sure that's exactly right and and also weirdly even though we do want to be more sociable it also is a distraction I mean you hear of artists who actually move out of Sydney they actually move away to the country because they too many people drop into their studio. <laughs> so I can see that can that can be the other side of it as well. Um, so it all depends on, you know, your 
your setup really, you know. Yeah. Um, and now you've built a very successful podcast called Thank Talking you. With Painters, uh, which has an excellent reputation in the art scene. So did you imagine when you embarked on this project that it would become a full-time thing? So you, you started off with thinking about art as a full-time thing and then you, you stored, started the podcast on the side. And when did it sort of become, oh, I'm, I want to do this um, at a more large length, full-scale thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got to say, when I started it, there was there was no way that I thought it would take over my painting. No way. I just started, like, as I was just saying a second ago, it was basically so I wasn't so isolated, you know. So I was listening to the radio a lot and listening to um, the, the uh, 702, basically, the ABC, and there'd be the, the news every half an hour, which would just be quite depressing because it was so negative so I was trying to find I had started hearing about podcasts and I thought what is this podcast thing you know and uh and then I thought okay well maybe there's a podcast out there about painters and painters talking about painting I can listen to that instead of listening to the radio and I noticed very quickly that there weren't many of those podcasts there was a few in um America there's a couple in America there was one in Ireland uh but none in none in Australia were just talking to painters. It, there were art ones, but not just talking to painters. So I thought, well, you know what? I mean, maybe I could do one. Maybe I could do that. That would be really good. So it basically was this huge learning curve because back in 2016, it wasn't like now where you just Googled how to start a podcast. It was, you know, I had to go from from you know from the beginning and just try and and find. Uh, how to do it step by step um, and I did slowly I got all this you know I'd ring people I'd get stuck and get to a dead end and have to just sort of find out from various people how to do it and then I, I finally did do it but yes I didn't I thought oh this is a fun thing to do on the side but I quickly realized that um, editing video audio interviewing is really I really love doing it and even though I love painting, I, I really love that more, you know. So even though I'm painting like say, oh, very rarely now, but say half a dozen times a year, I've got someone who sits for me and I paint him from life. Uh, I don't do much painting unless I'm sort of play, playing around with my nieces or something. So uh, yeah, so basically I found my real love, which is like editing. <laughs> <laughs> which is sort of bizarre, isn't it? But um, yeah, so that's that's uh, that's the way. It's all this direction I've taken. Yeah, it's definitely a, a short. I mean, a very steep learning curve. Um, we learned that last year when we started off, and I don't think we ever searched up how to make a podcast. Though there, there's plenty of stuff out there for that. And so I'm really grateful for the team. We all work together to sort of figure out, okay, what sort of equipment do we need? How do we use this? And I'm still very much an amateur in, t in terms of all of it. So I've got to say, yeah. it's very professional. <laughs> I'm very impressed with this setup, and you're a very good interviewer. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and I, I also wanted to say about your podcast that I'm so glad it's there. I was searching up something to listen to on my walk and um, I found out, I was, I was thinking I should get back to art because like you, I started off um, sort of doing art on the side and then of course the real world stuff takes over and you have to, you have other obligations. Um, so I did HSC visual arts and I'd actually been drawing since I was very young up till that point. I sort of played with the idea of perhaps becoming a fashion designer um, then I realized that the fashion world is also very brutal so um, and then I pivoted to other things but I think when it hit that I, I was starting law school um, 
I sort of push art to the side. And so like recently I've tried to pick that up more because I know it's good for your mental health when you have a balance between two things. Definitely. And as you know, probably, uh, drawing is so meditative. It is the best thing for, it's like you're meditating basically. And And time just goes so fast, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's great that you're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really glad to find your podcast. So I thought, okay, this is wonderful. This is like what I've been looking for, but I didn't know I was looking for that. I was just looking for an art podcast. Um, And so I've been listening to it on my walks. And it's really great because um, I also grew up listening to Conversations by Richard Weidler. Yes. Um, My mom loves that one. That's one of my favorites. (laughs) And in fact, he inspired me to start my podcast by Uh, listening to his podcast. Totally, totally. It's yeah. amazing because I see like the quality of his podcast and yours is like pretty much the same caliber. And I really, really love how deep the conversations go, especially with like the personal side of the artists and also um, how they describe their work because everyone sees art in very different ways. And to be able to hear it from the artists themselves is really great. Oh, great. Oh, that's so good to hear. Thank you. Yeah, it is great to hear them um how that to hear how they feel about their work because it can like I have gone into an interview where I have a certain uh, view about that that artist's work and by the end of the interview I've totally changed my view and I've loved it more because I've heard their side of it and what has spurred them on to do to create that work and I've see it in a totally different way and that's partly what I'm trying to do is sort of talk to the painter behind the painting and sort of say well what you know, apart from that, the older life stuff, that which is really interesting, the ups and downs and how did they get there, but also what is their vision about the work, which is really interesting. What did you do for the HSC? What was your major work? Um, it was a painting that was in several... I actually wasn't that happy with it. I think it hit a dead end around trials and that was where I was at my breaking point. I was like, oh, I have to get this right. And it ended up not being as right as I wanted it to be. I'll show you afterwards. I actually have my phone, but it wasn't something that I was super proud of, um, but I still keep in touch with my art teacher. And I think that was the best class that I took during that year. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, look, when you, HSC year and with your trials, I mean, it's, it's not the time when you're feeling the most relaxed to do an yeah. artwork. <laughs> so I think that is a bit of a problem. But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that actually. Oh, thank you. Um, so when I first spoke with you, you mentioned there are transferable skills between law school and um, podcasting. And how, how so? What sort of skills? Well, I think there's probably two. There's well, the, the first is probably the research side of things, because as you know, um, there's a lot of reading involved with, you know, law, and you're reading a lot of cases. Um, and you have to sort of, you know, get the, all the facts and the legal principles in your head um, to, to get your head around each thing. Uh, and it's a bit similar with, uh, with, with preparing for an interview, in that you want to get all the information that you can about that person and somehow commit that to your memory <laughs> the night before the interview and sort of it's like cramming for an exam uh, and especially if there's, it's a leading artist who's been around like I recently interviewed a um, guy Warren who's a hundred and to sort of go through his whole life and try and uh, you know remember all the things of, of what he's done and then somehow try and formulate the questions around that it's very it is very similar to uh, even preparing a, like having a matter, running a matter in, um, in a firm, 
you have to have like you have your chronology and all that sort of thing. It's very similar. I do that as well. I sort of have their chronology. I sort of do it in a form of a mind map actually, but I I do like to see it visually. Uh, and then and sort of commit all that to memory. So it's like cramming for an exam. But the other thing is attention to detail, I think. I mean, there are podcasts out there, you've probably heard them too, where they're, you know, just people sitting around microphone and just having a few drinks and having a chat. But that's not really, I suppose, what we're both doing is we're trying to um, get elicit sort of certain things from people. And... Um, that involves editing, like so, as I was saying about editing. So that, that for me, is quite a long process. And I think that attention to detail is something that you are that you have as a lawyer as well, because, I mean, you have to be careful. Like, if you when you're drafting pleadings or whatever, you, you can't get that wrong, because, you know, when you're in court at the hearing, they, you know, the whole thing could fall down. So you've got to, you've got to uh, really uh, pay attention to those things and and I think that pays off with podcasting it gives you I mean it sometimes you can be it can be argued it's overly produced sometimes but I try and balance that I keep in some of the ums and ahs and but I I try and keep it tight so that I don't lose the listener's attention um, it, I want to make it something that I would like to listen to and so I think you know there there's probably other things that also you know um, suit both sort of fields of work but I'd say that they're the main ones yeah yeah and also um well in the nature of your work when you're talking with clients you also have to ask them questions in the right way um and also to be tactful about your questions so thinking about how do I formulate this so that it doesn't come out the way that it's right right in my brain right now exactly <laughs> like try and do it in a way that doesn't poke anyone um, in the wrong places and so step on anyone's toes. Well, that's interesting because that's talking about Richard Feidler, he gave the best advice. He said the two questions that he thinks are the best, the most useful are why and really. I think really is a really good one because it just nudges that person to go a bit further along without suggesting something, not do, you know, um, making a leading question, you know. So... And it keeps it rolling, um, and but I think the why is really good. One that I, you know, talking about being abrupt, I used to sort of go, "What do you mean?" <laughs> and I thought, and you know, and I met somebody once who listened to the podcast, and they go, "Oh, I love it when you say, what do you mean?'" And I think, "Oh, that actually is a little bit abrupt <laughs> because it's sort of like you're not really explaining yourself very well." Um, so yeah, I know what you mean. You sort of you sort of got it in your back of your mind. How can I formulate this next question? I've got to say, if you're a barrister. It's perfect because all you have to, you know, you just, it's like you're examining someone in chief, you know, you're just asking, trying to get their story out. And a barrister would be perfect for a podcast interview because they would just slowly get all the information out as long as they weren't cross-examining you. Yeah, that's that's scary. (laughs) That is scary. (laughs) And when, when you interview people on your podcast, so you've talked about attention to detail and also understanding their whole chronology on where they started and you have to memorize all those details, but how do you actually prepare? Because um, when, when you sit down in front of them, do you also have a question list of some sort? Yeah, it's really interesting. So I have, um, it it usually ends up being like this six page thing where I just can't, I, for some reason, I can't just do it to one page with dot points. And you know what happens in the end? I don't ever look at it. I don't ever open that folder. Sometimes towards the end, I'll sort of think, okay, I'll, I'll flick through and I'll think, oh, have I covered everything I thought? 
but by the but because I've got it all in my head and I want to keep it engaged and going and I, I don't want to have to flick through my my um, notes but I have been I mean I you, I have been interviewed by other people like you for example and you're doing you know if you do have notes or whatever that it doesn't interfere with the conversation at all I remember I was interviewed and they had all the do- and I thought gee they're good they've got they've just got them all in dot points not like six pages of <laughs> points um, but for some reason I just I can't do it down to dot points but yeah so basically I don't end up, end up referring to it which is really really funny and I think I think it is partly because I've just crammed it all the night before you know um, and one thing I really like about your podcast, like I mentioned earlier, is that you draw really personal and meaningful conversations from um, all of your guests and you often spend hours talking to them. I think I read somewhere that you spend up to six hours sometimes talking to artists about that. So there was, there's a huge skill in requi- um, required to distill those long conversations and, like you said, edit them down um, to hour-long episodes in post-production. So what do you think amateur podcasters like me should focus on to improve the quality of the content that we produce? Oh, well, thank you for saying those kind things about about the interviews. And you're not an amateur podcaster. You're very professional, I've got to say. Um, Well, what I said before about research, I think research is really, really important um, if you're doing an interview podcast, you know, um, like what what I'm doing. Uh, And... Uh, just to keep it relevant, to keep it on point and not rambling, you know, because then that's more work in editing, uh, post-production. I think equipment is really important and you've got great equipment. I've got to say, these microphones are so impressive Um, and you're filming with a really great camera. Um, And because now, uh, it might have been different in 2016 when I started, but now it's so easy to get good equipment. And so if you don't have good audio equipment, it really shows up. And and it shouldn't be that way, but somehow it just sounds a little bit more profe- uh, serious and you take it more seriously if the audio is better, I find. And if it's too, you know, I, I'll turn off if it really is not, if, if it's a really clear um, sort of Zoom conversation that's not locally recorded or whatever Um, so even if I do a remote interview which I rarely do but when I do I always get that person to also record on a a smartphone yeah because I think I just want a I want to back up because you hear so often about you know people for something going wrong Uh, so I want to back up but also it's usually better than their inbuilt microphone if they don't have it plugged in so I think audio equipment so I think equipment as well is really important and I think if you do like it's not that important to edit, but if you want it to be, you know, semi-professional, spend time editing it, and um, it involves also listening back to it quite a few times. Uh, so it's quite time-consuming. I spend quite a few hours editing, but I think that's really important if you want to have like a more professional sort of sounding podcast. Yeah, definitely. Anything that requires a lot of effort um, to do always turns out great. Yeah, I think that's right. And also you've li- and also you learn a lot more about interviewing because you you're hearing yourself back, and you're thinking, oh, why did I say that? And oh, why didn't I follow up that? And why did you know? Um, oh, that's the other one. Listen. So when you're interviewing, uh, listen to the answer because. Sometimes uh, you've got a little nugget there that they've said and you've just got to go off on a tangent. And and sometimes I've heard back to my recordings and I thought, oh, my goodness, I can't believe they said that and I didn't follow that lead, you know. Um, So, yeah, listening is really important. Oh, and you know what else? Oh, I only learnt this at about episode 80 because it was so hard to do and you're so good at it. 
don't go, yeah, yeah, <laughs> throughout it because you're trying to, I used to do this. I used to say, they'd say something. I thought to make them feel comfortable, I would go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, right. <laughs> and then I realised you've got to nod because otherwise those yes get really annoying. So that's the other tip I would give to, um, to you know, uh, amateur podcasters. Well, it wasn't really a, a conscious thing on my part. I think I'm just used to being on the quiet side. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't really interject as much. And that definitely was, I think, the first episode. Um, I didn't speak a lot. I would just go like, yeah, and then move on to the next question. And I was quite nervous as well. So I was thinking, stick to the script. I have to, have to get through every single question. But um, there's, there's definitely that experience with learning how to create a conversation, listening to the person and responding to that and not being too afraid to deviate from the script because although we're very careful with um, especially if it's a sponsor firm and they have certain stipulations like oh you can't talk about this well none of them have said that but just in case so we've always been quite careful with the content and like sticking to the script but um, there's always that good thing about like being able to edit it out later so um, yeah, yeah. That's it. really interesting, actually, because I remember at one point I was thinking, oh, should I do another podcast? Should I do something law-related? Which I'm not going to do. But uh, And that was one of the things I was thinking was going to be difficult, because if you are talking to people about law, they're going to be restricted to talk about matters and cases and things. So I was thinking about that, that, uh, you know, and then they're self-censor, even, even with art. Sometimes they won't talk about certain things, which is fair enough, you know. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's a learning curve, and also, uh, you're not like I started off by interviewing people I knew because I thought, oh, I'll, I'll interview my art teacher who won the Archibald, you know, which was quite handy. So it's totally different interviewing someone you know well and interviewing you interviewing me that you've never met before. So it is more intimate and it's intimidating. And you're young. I mean, I'm in my 50s, so I feel, you know, a bit more self-assured in sort of lots of ways. So I'm really, you know, you're doing really well. Oh, thank you Fantastic. so much. Um, and how might we build better connections with guests? So you've you generally have um, quite an in-depth conversation that you, you sort of go through every single point and then you sort of start off like, okay, where did you start off and how did you end up here? Um, but for our podcast, because we only have around an hour, two hours to speak to the guests, so I'm always quite conscious, like how do we draw out the best um, of what they have to offer? Sometimes it's sort of fixated on this point that doesn't come out as great in, in the end. Ah, uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, well, I think making them feel comfortable at the beginning is good, and you're really good at that. So you even let me see what my, I look like on the camera before I started, <laughs> and that was good. Um, and the way I do that as well is um, I say to the person, uh, I say, look, I edit everything. If you decide tomorrow you don't want that part in that you said, I'll take that out, just let me know. Um, and... Um, if you have to say something again, just say it again, you know, and if it takes you time, there's a big silence, don't worry about it. So I put them at ease in that way. Um, and so, so so, do you mean as in trying to get something specific out of them and not getting off, to, or, or basically getting something out of them that falls flat a bit that you thought would be a good story that's not a good story? Yeah. So yeah, that's happened yeah. to me. 
when when I write up a script, I actually spend quite a lot of time, maybe like up to an hour, two hours, because I think about the way that I should progress the script. Um, so I'm really pedantic about how a certain question links to the next question. So I'll say that you started out here and then I'll move into the next part. And what I anticipate might be the answer doesn't actually come out there. Ah, yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, right. Well, I suppose in that case, yes, and that has happened to me that um, I've realised that I missed that whole bit. So, because usually I'm chronological, which I sometimes think to myself, oh, is that a bit boring? I do that every time, but and I, but I, it works, so I just I keep doing it. And I might have, and because I don't refer to my notes very much. I might miss a key development, like say they won this huge prize, you know, when they were 20 and then and it was like pivotal and, I, and we've already skipped to when, you know, they're 30 or something. Um, I often just jump, jump back to it and I go, oh, wait a second, oh, but we missed the, I missed, I often actually say, oh, but I missed this bit, let's go back. When you were 20, blah de blah and um, and also that's part of the conversation as well and it sort of shows that I'm really interested in them and oh can we go back to this thing that we missed and but also you've got to remember that you missed it <laughs> but yeah so, so say if they didn't didn't say what you thought you could even bring in a leading question at that point you know uh, and sort of say oh but I remember reading somewhere, blah, 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 you know, and then get them back onto it. I remember once I interviewed somebody and I was hoping for this really juicy, and it was the main reason I was interviewing them was for this, uh, it, was, it wasn't actually an artist, it was somebody who had written about an artist. And I was hoping for this really juicy story. I won't say what it was, just, and it just, they dealt with it just in like an hour, not an hour, sorry, and they dealt with it in like a sentence. And I thought, oh my God. And then I had to try and get the excitement up again, back, go back to it again and sort of, you know, go into it again. It never really was exciting as I was hoping it was going to be. But I suppose, you know, that's part of it. You know, you just don't know how it's going to go in the end. You can try, but there's nothing wrong with going back and sort of raising it again if it was skimmed over, I think. Um, but yeah, you can't sort of control what they're going to say, I suppose, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and what's the process like being a full-time content creator? I can see from your regular Instagram updates that you're always meeting artists and exploring new art and um, posting art updates. So being a full-time content creator, because that's like the more millennial term to use, yeah, yeah. where you're doing a lot of different things, not only YouTube, but you also put um, your podcast on different podcasting platforms. Yeah, well, well, Instagram. I'm an Instagram addict first of all, and I actually had to get physio for my neck last year <laughs> during lockdown, uh, embarrassingly. Uh, but now I've learned not to, to be sort of using that posture all the time. So yeah, so Instagram is where my tribe is. So they're there all the time. So I'm constantly posting there. And I've got my YouTube channel, which is going uh, really well. So over 160 videos on that. But it's I'm falling behind because I haven't done so I've got about 10 I have to do there so it's it's actually hard balancing everything because there's so many things so there's the podcast which weirdly sort of takes more time than the YouTube editing the YouTube videos um, and uh, but Instagram is my daily uh, attention so I will spend a lot of time so I mean 
followers are important, likes are important. Unfortunately, we are driven by that. We're driven by likes and followers. And I remember when social media started, the whole idea of likes was sort of like, what is that? Why are we paying attention to numbers of people pressing that button, you know? But that's the way social media works and it's going to get pushed out to more people if there's more views of reels. And Instagram's now, you know, this sort of crazy video platform now, which suits me because I love video. Um, and I find that, so I find that my podcasting and YouTube is much more project driven and my Instagram, I have to be, uh, I have to be inspired that day. So I won't ever plan on Monday, I'm going to post that, Tuesday, I'm going to post that. I have to be that day, I think, oh, okay, what am I, you know, what video could I put up or whatever? And then I quickly make it up. And so I find that really exciting and fun the Instagram side of it um, and also spin-offs have been like doing live things so now I'm doing talks at the Art Gallery of New South Wales of interviewing artists and I did a series for them over lockdown we did that remote we did that online that was really fun and I open shows sometimes so there's all these different aspects of being a content creator as you say and you end up meeting people that listen to the podcast which is really fun so I'm making so many connections um, so it's not just a podcast anymore it's sort of amazing you know how it's really across so many different platforms it's really a lot of fun I've got to say and I'm just looking at a lot of art every day so scrolling looking at so many paintings um, I really want to spend a little bit more time on Indigenous art. I want to do, you know, I'd love to go to um, Northern Territory and go to some of these art centres, but I just have to... It, that is a bit of a big project, but something that I really want to do, so, yeah. Yeah, that would be amazing to yeah. look forward to. Oh, incredible, incredible. Um, and so a bit more on your Instagram page. That's become a key part of your work. So we've already touched upon a bit of how that has been into... Um, sort of involved in your work a bit more over the years. How do you think social media has changed the way people work and not only content creators? Well, for artists, it has been a huge dream come true because it's created this community and we are all talking to each other and we, you know, there is no way we would have known so many artists personally because there's dms and you know comments and likes and all that sort of thing and um we're all connected in that way so i think for artists that has been a huge plus there is the downside for artists and that is a it's a huge distraction so i think you know instead of going in and just starting painting you're going to spend an hour scrolling and even longer, you know, sometimes. And or you go down a rabbit hole, you know, think, oh, I wonder what, you know, Van Gogh thought when he was, you know, 15 or <laughs> And you end up on YouTube for an hour. So there's that, is that it can be a distraction. So that is not great for um, people who work alone. The other downside is sometimes you can compare yourself too much to other artists and you can think oh gee they're doing so well and you know or they do a process video and you think oh wow you know they're so good at that and look at me I'm so hopeless and so and you can even your style can get compromised because you think oh maybe I should be doing more of that and and then you don't stick to what really is you um, so 
which is, can be good in some ways, but I think that's the downside of social media for, for um, artists. But the community, is that is such a huge bonus and um, being able... And actually, uh, one of the artists that I've interviewed, Geordie Kerwick, and he, when I interviewed him, he was only started painting 18 months before. He's now one of the top international, you know, Australian painters on the international art scene because and a large part is because he has made so many contacts. I mean, he's a great artist and I've got a couple of his works, but he has made a lot of a lot of contacts through Instagram. And he is great on Instagram and he's really generous and he shows all his work and he's and he shows a few things of his family and but he's made a lot of contacts with galleries and um, he's just a lovely guy. So I mean it's his personality as well. So now artists can make contacts with gallery, a gallery in you know, Denmark and be in their group show because th that gallerist saw their work online and just said, oh, you know, why don't you, why don't you include one of, you send one of your works over and we'll put it in our group show. That is now crazily happening all over the world. So um, that old gallery system where you basically were just sort of begging for a gallery to take your work. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's changed, you know. And also for galleries too, they are now embracing it, which is fantastic. Like when I started the podcast, it was like the idea of me going into a gallery and, and showing all the work in the gallery and putting it on Instagram was really frowned upon by some of the galleries. And now they love it if you do that, you know, because um, they realise it's just getting the word out and, and that how many people can actually get to the gallery. Whereas if I do a walkthrough might get 6,000 views or something, you know, and those people from all over Australia who are dying to see the show but can't get there. So it's just shrunk the art world, which is fantastic. And I think everybody, everybody in the art world loves it now as it totally embraced it. I think COVID has definitely changed the, the gallery's mindset as well. I think a few of them were offering virtual tours, so you could click through on your browser and see all of the currently displaying artworks there. So that was a bit of a change. Yeah, definitely. They've definitely embraced video and those sort of virtual in tours. Yeah, and I think it's for the... Because also the other thing that they realised over COVID, which I don't think anybody expected, was that people were going to go and buy work online because that wasn't really happening much before. I mean, maybe with those small, those sort of the blue thumb, you know, where sort of more, um, you know, less professional artists are, although there are a lot of professional artists on there as well, I've got to say, uh, which probably sold, you, you would be more likely to buy something online for say $250. But people were buying $10,000 paintings without seeing it, having seen it in real life, you know? And I think once the galleries realised that that was happening, they, were, they would embrace it more as well. And now even um, some galleries, I noticed that a lot of them don't do it, but some do, is they will put the price. Like, so like for a leading artist that it costs $50,000 for a painting, in the past, you would never put that under the image of the painting. It just, somehow it was crass or something. It was considered, oh, why would I do, you know, you should be an inquiry and the person should come and see it and there's only going to have a cup of tea and <laughs> all that sort of thing. And now it's just, you know, and click here and you can buy it, you know, which I think is great because even if it's a leading artist, if you're an art collector, you know the quality of that artist's work and you know, you've, you've seen it enough to know how good it is and probably, you know, that's probably you've got a cooling off period or something. I don't know what they do. I must say for $50,000, it's a pretty big investment. But um, 
uh, yeah, I think it's a good. I think it's a good move. I think it's great. And and people want to buy art, and also they get intimidated going into these big. You know, although they're not as intimidating as much anymore, but sometimes those galleries, you walk in and they don't even look up from the desk <laughs> to say hello. Um, I've got to be fit. It's not really that like that anymore, but it used to be. Um, so I think people didn't didn't feel comfortable do, going in as much. But yeah, so it's changed. The art scene has changed a lot in the last, say, five to ten years, uh, and for the better. Yeah, it has been more transparent, more information access, but also more exposure to different things. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. Um, and it's, it's, it's also just changing it from year to year too. So it's really great. Yeah. Speaking of exposure though, um, to put some legal spin on things, have any of the artists who you've interviewed perceived social media and just the internet in general with sharing art as a negative influence on their practice? Because I think there's potentially like intellectual property issues with um, some people who really enjoy people sharing their art, reposting their art, but then there's also those accounts that to be honest, personally, I get quite annoyed at um, <laughs> that just repost artwork without crediting anyone. Oh, yes, 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 um, yes. I've seen those too, yeah. Well, I think I think what happens in the end with those ones is that people just ignore them after a while. They're not going to get many views because, first of all, they want to know who the artist is um, and it just looks shonky, you know. Um, but I think from the point of view of sharing art legitimately and crediting the artist, um, and I've always got permission when I share my artists' uh, works. Uh, it's the artist loves it. I mean, the more exposure, the better. The I feel I I think the problems come in when you're talking about somebody. Uh, to, and this happened to one of my artists that I've interviewed on the podcast, Laura Belsparovsky, that they went online and they got a high res image and made it into a print, oh. or put it on a t-shirt. Yeah. And no credit to the artist. Um, and she actually dealt with it really well by just sort of basically posting on Instagram saying, look what they've done. And it basically shamed them. <laughs> and so uh, I think that, and I think now artists are very careful not to put really high res images online. Or there's some software you can use that you can't drag it off or something or other. Yeah, so basically I think that's where the problems lie, where people are selling their work and not crediting them, um, yeah, in the form of prints or whatever. But uh, social media-wise, I can't. I don't know any artist that doesn't enjoy their work being shared. And it is a sharing. It's really what Instagram. They they want you to do that. They want you to share and repost and all that sort of thing. But but yeah, those shonky ones where they don't credit them. Um, I don't think anybody likes those accounts. Though <laughs> <laughs> there are quite a lot out there, and the t-shirt thing is quite a big issue as well, especially if the artist isn't quite established. So they have amazing artworks, and someone's noticed that, but they obviously don't want to credit them, or they don't want to give any royalties to them. So they just take it, put it on some merch, and sell it. And of course, the exposure that that gets is actually sometimes higher than the original artwork. I know it's outrageous, and can you imagine how upsetting it would be for the artist? And then what do you do? Do you spend thousands of dollars taking them to court? It's really difficult. That's why I think the shaming thing is better. <laughs> because you just, and it actually really worked for her, I think. I mean, I can't, Laura Bell, if you're listening, I don't know if, how it ended up. But I th when I saw that, I thought, wow, what a powerful way. Because, well, partly because she had so many followers, yeah. so it worked for her. And, um, so I suppose if you're a small, if you don't have much of a social media presence and someone does it to you, what, what is your recourse? 
I mean, I'm sure you would win if you went to court, but you know, I mean, how much is it going to cost? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can try and pressure them, I suppose, into into acknowledging you and threatening legal proceedings, and maybe somehow then some they might. Well, yeah, you can threaten legal proceedings, and they might stop. I suppose that's the best way of doing it. Uh, but as yeah, but but the social media thing, I think, is usually considered a bonus if people are sharing your work. You know, definitely. Yeah, because they're not profiting from it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so it's so easy to share and. Um, you do get more exposure that way. Yeah, totally. And yeah, I think it's really being embraced now. So um, everyone's sort of getting on board and realising the benefits of it. Um, And finally, do you have any words of wisdom to our listeners, um, whether that be about careers or passions? Well, I would say, um, I would say being a lawyer is, can be very stressful. So I think it's really important uh, to take care of your mental health. So you really, really need to have something else going on at the same time. So like for you and me, it's obviously, if I was practising law still, it would be art um, because it just takes you away from, you know, it just takes you into a different mindset. And I think the, the thing that you want is that is it, to pursue and sometimes people don't they sort of think well I don't have a passion I don't really know what I want but anything that makes you feel like you you know like it makes you feel I really am myself when I'm doing this Um, and it's my I really fit into this world I think that is what you need to pursue and if you can if you can somehow make it bigger and make it you know your work or whatever fantastic but if not it doesn't matter it just and and sort of consider it like it's the journey, really. I remember one of my, uh, my my guests said, you know, just enjoy the journey. And it is so true. Just enjoy being curious about that that thing or, you know, meet people through it. Or And I think social contact is really important. Actually, that's the other thing I would say is uh, who knows what's going to happen now in the post-COVID world with, you know, going to the office and everything. But really if if you can if people are going into the office it's a good idea to go a little bit you know or a couple of days a week or whatever because that contact is not only good for your work but it's just really good for your mental health um and i think mental health for lawyers is really important to keep it you know keep an eye on it yeah i definitely agree with that um i started at um a law firm in the middle of the pandemic well the second lockdown and so I've mostly been at home, but the times when I actually go into the office, I really appreciate it because you actually get to see the people. Instead of just being in front of your computer, you don't actually get to see anyone. You have to receive tasks through email and you just got to go, okay, next one. Well, exactly. <laughs> and also, I mean, for promotions and things, if people get to know you and they they like you, I mean, you're more likely to be promoted even if it, it, rather than just seeing on paper what you've achieved, you know? That's right. Um, so it's a really important All right. Well, it was a pleasure speaking with you today, Maria. I'm sure our listeners have learnt lots from this episode on both law and non-law careers. I know I certainly have benefited from learning from your experiences and also insights and podcasting. Thanks so much, Tracy. It's been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Insights by UNSW Law Society. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out on any future episodes.